Free and fair elections sit at the heart of the democratic process. And in Victoria, state and local government elections are overseen by the Victorian Electoral Commission. Despite the importance of its work, it's a body that many of us are probably only vaguely aware of. But as anyone with even a passing awareness of American politics will tell you, the conduct of electoral processes themselves can quickly become supercharged political issues. Hello and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives. I'm Nick Bastow. Our guest in this episode is Warwick Gately AM, who was appointed as Victorian Electoral Commissioner in 2013 and who has responsibility for Victoria's electoral role, the conduct of Victorian parliamentary and local council elections, as well as referendums and various other statutory polls. It's a big responsibility for what's a relatively small body. Around 160 people work at the VEC, but during state election periods, that number can grow up to 25,000. Like the Auditor-General, but unlike most public servants, the Victorian Electoral Commissioner reports directly to Parliament. So it's a position that's not subject to the directional control of the Minister in relation to the Commission's work. Our fixed-term system of government in Victoria means that the next state election is not scheduled until 2022, but we will have local government elections in October this year. Planning any sort of election process is tricky enough in the usual environment, but COVID-19 presents big challenges for a process that has to be seen as trusted and transparent. So I began by asking Warwick Gately about the moment when he suddenly realised just how big the organisational challenges created by COVID-19 were going to be. Yeah, I recall uh, we were back in March, uh, Nick, and at that point in time, we were, we were six months out from the local government elections. And an event like like this one ordinarily takes about 18 months to uh, get yourself organised to conduct. It's a significant logistics exercise. So so in March, we we're only six months away from, from rolling out the local government election round. Uh, planning was well advanced. We had a strong... Uh, local government election plan. We were engaging well with the councils who were our clients. And uh, and then we had to change the way we operate. Now, related to that, in the space of a, a very short order, we had 150 people working off site. Now, I put that down to a couple of things. We've invested very heavily in, uh, in technology, in our technology suite. A lot of that came about from concerns about cybersecurity. If you look back uh, to international elections, there, there, there was evidence of interference uh, across the globe in various election activities. And we, we wanted to make sure that we were robust. And uh, we were very closely involved with the Australian Signals Directorate and uh, other departments in, in Canberra as well. We've invested heavily in that. As part of that, we invested heavily in making our workforce agile and mobile. So we were off-site, 150 people off-site working from home in a week. So we're very pleased with that. So, so I remember March uh, particularly well and, and the way we responded and our, and our standard operating environments held up very well since. Victoria has fixed-term parliament, so the next state elections are not scheduled till November 22. Um, but as you said, we do have council elections coming up later this year in October. What sort of challenges will COVID create to those elections being held? Look, significant challenges. And we, we, we tend to think of, uh, of postal elections as being a little handoff. 
uh, in that uh, your ballot pack will turn up in your post box, you'll fill it out, you'll post it back. It's done. Well, um, not quite that, that simple. I need uh, about 6,000 uh, casual workers to assist me in that process. What we, our concept of operations requires that we establish election offices in each council area. So I've got 76 temporary workspaces and they're being fitted out at the moment. And I'll put in place in each of those offices a, a team of perhaps up to 10, maybe up to 20 in the larger council areas as well. They will take the nominations, they will deal with the local council, they will deal with uh, over-the-counter inquiries, they will receive the ballot material back from Australia Post, they will uh, they will account for that, they will open it up, they will count it, they will provide the results. So it's a very local operation, but there is still a lot of person-to-person -person interaction. That presents its own problems. And uh, we're very closely aligned with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, very closely aligned with the CHO directives to make sure that all participants, not just my workforce, but the candidates and the public, can be involved in this election safely. We have another two years in Victoria before the next state election, but Queensland's holding an election in late October this year, and we're recording this discussion during stage four lockdown conditions in Victoria. How feasible would it be to hold a traditional style state election in the current Victorian situation? I think it would be very, uh, it would be very complex. It would be very difficult given that the state election is primarily an attendance election. So we, uh, we operate well over 100 uh, voting centre venues across the state. And on election day, that's about 1,800. And uh, you require the public to go and, to go and attend those locations. Um, so um, I would hope in two years' time, the situation uh, is much improved. Postal voting in the local government elections provides us an opportunity a better opportunity to conduct these elections uh, more safely. Um, I, my, my thoughts at the moment are not going to 2022. I've got to make sure that I'm, uh, that I'm structured and able to deliver 2020 safely at the moment. But postal voting does allow that to occur a little more safely. Do you have a sense of what's going to happen in Queensland? I mean, obviously, the, the, the COVID situation in Queensland is very different, um, but just how they're going to handle what could be a potentially a very, from a health perspective, a very risky undertaking. Look, they did their local government election thing earlier this year, and uh, a lot of that was, uh, was attendance voting as well. I understand that that went as, as well as it could have for the Queensland Electoral Commission, and uh, no doubt there are a lot of learnings from that. Uh, and I'm sure they'll apply those as they go into the state election towards the end of this year. And in fact, the ACT are going to an election now. The Northern Territory are in the process of finalising theirs as well. Uh, Tasmania conducted upper house uh, elections, I think, uh, about May as well. So there's, there's a number of activities going on and we work very closely with the other jurisdictions. So whatever learnings they have, uh, we will take on board as well. But I still have two years to worry about the state election. As you... Uh, noted there the sort of interaction between jurisdictions and Australia, of course, is a federation. And I would suspect that most public servants have some experience of the of the complexities of the interaction between the state public services and the Commonwealth public sector. What's the relationship between the Australian Electoral Commission and the Victorian Electoral Commission? And how does that play out in the running of state and federal elections? 
we work very closely with the Australian Electoral Commission, as you would expect. And in fact, we, uh, we share uh, enrolment data with the Commonwealth. Uh, that, that's a two-way two exchange of information. And uh, whilst we maintain the state register of electors, uh, the Commonwealth, of course, have their own, their own register as well. Um, that works very effectively. Uh, we're meeting regularly with them. In fact, all the, all the state and Commonwealth commissioners come together about four times a year on matters such as, as the role uh, enrolment processes. You know, we hear of the difficulty, for example, uh, of enrolment in, uh, in, you know, regional Australia, in, in the Northern Territory particularly as well. So there's a lot of learnings there. Very positive engagement with the Commonwealth at all levels. And, uh, and there's a lot to be learnt from that active exchange with them, but most active, of course, in the exchange of, uh, of enrolment data. Your career began in the Royal Australian Navy, where you were a ship commander. You later worked at very high levels in the ADF. So in addition to your public sector experience, um, you've also had a very deep experience of leadership. I wondered what your experience of being a public sector leader has been during this crisis. There's been a number of, uh, I think, uh, personal learnings, uh, Nick. That uh, you know, I've reflected on as we've unrolled this. Uh, part of my part of my leadership approach has, has been to always be available, to always be seen, to be observable around the organisation. Of course, that, uh, that that's very difficult now. And in the space of one day, for example, in the office, I could interact with uh, you know with, with seventy or eighty people. Very hard now to do that in a in a work from home environment, and it's it's trying to get the message out without without overexposing myself. I, I don't think my staff want to see my face every minute of every day. Uh, we kind of devolve the leadership down into the teams area, whereas each of the uh, you know the senior leadership group in their own team responsibility, they're taking that on board. Uh, they're they're looking carefully to the welfare and well being of their of their particular teams. Uh, we, we have some, some really uh, clever interactions here. For example, we have a Fashion Friday where people kind of put on clothes in a theme and come together online on a Friday. Uh, other, other soft activities like that. But look, it is a test of leadership. Um, I think it's, uh, as I said, I, my way of that was to be seen, to be observed. I find that harder now in this environment. And I do know that uh, that some some of the staff have struggled with working from home, but it's the it's the nature of the world at the moment, Nick. And I think going forward from here, we'll be looking very carefully at the workplace and how that's going to be structured in the future. And uh, and I came back to that that term earlier, agile and mobile. I think we need to we need to give credence to that and make sure we can provide every opportunity for every member of our team to work from home as they need to, as they choose to, and make it available to them. And I'm not seeing any, any reduction in productivity at all across the Commission, particularly in this very busy time that we're facing at the moment. It strikes me from talking to a few leaders now, one way that people had of assessing how is an organisation performing is there are a whole lot of metrics, I suppose, you can look at. But for lots of leaders, they did use a, a, quite a personal sense of, you know, you get a sense of, you look at people and you see, do they look stressed? How do the, you know, the, there's, a, there's a buzz in the office or there's not a buzz in an office when, when people are under stress. And it, it strikes me that lots of those things, lots of those informal signals now have really disappeared or are being presented in very different ways. I'd agree with that, absolutely. And uh, it, 
sometimes you can sense, for example, uh, we have uh, our planning group, which comes together every week and looks particularly at the local government election round. And you, you can sense, uh, is, there, is there banter to the side? Is there a kind of uh, a joke and a laugh when people come online for that first one minute engagement before you settle into the business? You can, you can sense it and we reflect on that. And uh, then within our team's environment, we'll, we'll go back and try and try and better gauge that mood. Uh, but look, we, we, we just had, uh, I think even overnight, whole Victorian government survey results came through in, in a wellbeing context. And, and I was encouraged by what I saw in relation to the Victorian Electoral Commission, but, uh, but it's ongoing work and it is made more difficult by, by this online environment that we're now all obliged to work in. Disasters like COVID and bushfires are moments, quite rare moments, when the broader public sector and uh, staff from the Defence Force have to work together. Uh, You're someone who has worked in both worlds. And I wonder what strikes you about the similarities and differences in the way that the two sectors operate as someone who's seen both worlds. Each of the organisations bring a different skill set to the table in terms of the delivery of that public service. Uh, The military, of course, um, can provide niche skills, perhaps in the areas of logistics, of transport, etc. And again, Nick, I I, I, I preface this by saying I've I've been out of it for a long time. And uh, but, you know, I I just, I would just caution uh, that the ADF is there primarily as a defence force. Uh, it, it, it is a war fighting force. That's what it's there for. That's what it's structured for. That's what it's equipped to do. Um, it is a lean. It is a lean force. There are not uh, barracks full of soldiers, sailors, and airmen uh, sitting around uh, waiting to contribute to the public good. Um, but they can bring niche skills, and I think we saw that uh, in the bushfires as well with the transport. Uh, component particularly uh, but you know again look they're not equipped necessarily to fight fires they're not they're not equipped um, uh, to contribute as an MFB or as a CFA that's not you know that's not their primary role but again I I say that's that, that's experience from 20 years ago public administration systems it seems to me de- develop to reflect the communities that they serve at least to some extent And one of the distinctive aspects of Australian public administration compared to, say, public administration systems in the United States is that in Australia, relatively anonymous public administrators are in charge of processes that in the United States are very deeply politicised and polarised. One example of that is in the drawing of electoral boundaries. In Victoria, that's done by the Electoral Boundary Commission, which you're one of the three members of and which the VEC provides support to. Now, your decisions on electoral boundaries are not subject to veto or alteration by parliament or government. And to be honest, they're generally relatively uncontroversial. In the United States, that sort of commission is often dominated by political affiliations and arguments about electoral boundary decisions have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court in the United States. What do you think that says about our attitude to the work of public administration in Australia? Look, uh, my own view would be that uh, we can have absolute confidence in, in the way uh, public administration is conducted. And, and I'll look particularly at, the, at, at Australia's electoral systems. Uh, 
and not just the boundary uh, matter that you discussed there. But we can have uh, every confidence in, in our in our Commonwealth system, in our jurisdictional systems as well, they are robust, they are rigorous, they are independent. And uh, I see that uh, in, every, in every state election and, and in, in the, the federal election as well. When I look particularly at, at the boundaries matter, as you just discussed, and I have experience of this in Western Australia as well, where a similar three-person three, three commission conducts those boundaries independently. And we start that work uh, uh, December this year in preparation for it unrolling next year. And as you said there, myself, the, the Chief Judge of the County Court, the Surveyor General come together. We've met uh, a couple of times already in, in the lead up to this work. And that will be an entirely independent process. We'll call upon the communities and, uh, and, the, and the registered political parties, those that want to be involved in the process to put forward their thoughts. We'll reflect on that. We will look carefully at the elected numbers in the state. Uh, and then we will uh, we will do some public hearings as well, and then we'll we will independently the three of us independently uh, build the state districts in Victoria such that we go to the 2022 election with uh, equity in all of those 88 electoral districts, and uh, the community can have every confidence in that process. It is entirely independent, it is entirely open, it is transparent, and uh, and I think that sets up our electoral system very well. And you know, whilst, whilst we might all think that, um, that the electoral systems, uh, while they, they vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, we can have absolute faith in their rigor, in their independence, and in the way our elections are conducted. What do you think when you look at the United States and the sort of, I suppose, where the electoral process itself now has um, certainly been questioned as to whether it's feasible to run this type of um, you know, incredibly important election. What's your reflections on what, what's happening in the United States in terms of the the administrative functions that have to go behind uh, this ultimate the ultimate democratic process? Um, and uh, Nick, I, I'm no I'm no student uh, of uh, American politics, but I, I would say, as an observation, I feel for the elector in America, where you know here in Victoria, for example. Uh, on the register of electors, I have I have uh, over 96% of the eligible electoral population on that roll, and we'll get a turnout of 92, 93%. Admittedly, admittedly in a compulsory voting environment, so so we we have we have I can I can say all you know all Victorians are engaged in a state election process, and in the Commonwealth as well, we could argue that that's the same case. Um, and when I look at uh, when I look at the disenfranchisement, for example, in America, and the and the difficulty in getting one on the roll and getting a vote cast as well, I you know I, I do feel for the elector. Uh, that, that would be where that would be the comment I would make on that. You know, and it comes again. It comes back to our our electoral system here and the confidence we can have in that. In twelve months' time, in what's hopefully a COVID-free world, or at least a a COVID-normal Victoria. Do you think that the work of the VEC and the way that the VEC works um, will be back to what it was in 2020? Or what do you think, or do you think some elements and elements of that will have fundamentally changed because of COVID-19? Look, the, the work will be the same. Um, it, it's, it's how we go about delivering that work. And uh, for example, 
we've put a lot more now online. So a lot of our outreach programs have now gone online because we can't do them face to face. Our election manager training is now online because we can't do it face to face. Uh, you know, our website is, is much more um, a focal area for us and for the community to go as well. You know, we're doing much more in the digital communication space. I've been rolling out a voter alert uh, message this week to, to about 2.2 million Victorian electors just to remind them that they, you know, get on the roll, roll closes tomorrow, uh, and we've got the local government elections coming up. So, so, um, our work will not change. It's it's how we go about delivering that work, how we go about providing our services to the community, so that you know, so that those the disadvantaged um, parts of the community can still get reached. The culturally, linguistically diverse, uh, you know, the the, uh, the blind, low vision, the disabled, the homeless. Uh, you know, how we roll those services out to them. That will change. We're going through a moment now of extraordinary stress in the community and a huge challenge facing facing the public sector. I wonder what gives you confidence that we will make it through this, that the that the sort of institution, public sector institutions are able to cope with this sort of challenge. Look, I often um, reflect when I look at the news each night and um, and both both from a Commonwealth perspective and a state perspective, as as our leaders make decisions, I often think who is putting that in place in the background because they must be working some incredibly long hours and uh, under a very difficult environment where, you know, you, you don't have a lot of time to interpret a policy intent, a policy direction and to put it into operations in the field. You know, that's, that's not unlike a military operation where you, you'll get a commander's decision and then it's got to be operationalised in the morning or immediately. And then it, then it impacts people thereafter. So, um, I do admire what is being produced from a number of departments. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm busy here, but I, I'm, I'm in no way as busy as some of these, uh, you know, the health human services area, uh, particularly, uh, you know, some of these policy areas, particularly, you know, in, in the VEC, we don't lead the policy debate. We implement government, uh, government legislation. So I'm kind of divorced from it, but, I have admiration for for all those on the front line delivering these services in very short time frames where decisions are made quickly and implementation is expected immediately. So I have a lot of admiration for that. I think the community can as well. Warwick Gately, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives this week. Thanks, Nick. That brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the VEC or check your enrolment for the local government elections that will be held in October 2020, you can find links to their website in the program show notes. Public Sector Perspectives is produced for IPA Victoria. I'm Nick Basto, and thanks for listening. <laughs>